I want to welcome you to uh, our session this evening, Understanding Bible Prophecy, and let's start with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, in a world of chaos and trying to think through the wars and all that's happening in Israel, we thank you, Lord, for a time to sit down and consider the Word of God. And we thank you, Lord God, for the subject of the future and that you have let us know what is coming. And I pray, Lord, that everyone who hears these sessions would be blessed and encouraged to walk upright before you and live for your honor and glory. So we ask your blessing on our evening in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me add something here first uh, that is not related to our present studies. Uh, I will be taking more than one session on the subject of the rapture, which we want to begin to look at. But here's the addition. There's a new Bible translation being worked on today, and the New Testament is available. My wife uh, alerted me to this the other day. And let me give you just a little information that might help you uh, or someone you know. It's called the LSB, not LSD, <laughs> LSB, uh, the Legacy Standard Bible. It uh, has been done by six translators, all Calvinists, all from John MacArthur's uh, seminary, I gather. And as all modern English translations, apart from the New King James Version uh, and the King James, the LSB uh, is based on the eclectic text of the Greek New Testament, which claims to make itself uh, from, from all the manuscripts. There are some 5,000, more than 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, handwritten copies. And uh, the eclectic text says we take uh, all of them and consider all of them with all the variations. It's a very big subject. I can't go through it all, but they use the eclectic text, which I personally uh, do not agree with, and I find it a little misleading to say we use the eclectic text because, as likely most all other translations, they use the eclectic, but they go back to the two oldest ones, which I think are not the best, as most say, but they are... No, they are, if anything, possibly the worst manuscripts because they are in good shape, were never used for recopying. And I also uh, don't hold to those manuscripts because of this. If those are the best manuscripts, that meant that means that the New Testament, uh, that the Christian has never had the best text, well, for the most part of the church age, didn't have the best text. And I can't see that happening. Uh, let me give you two views that I hold to that determine which translations I use. And uh, um, I will give you a course on Bible translations in just a few minutes so you know what happens when you do that. It's just the bare bones. It is a, a very complex subject, but number one, I believe that God saw to it that every book he wanted in the Bible is there. That includes the Song of Solomon and the book of James and so on. Uh, they're all there. Here's what people try to do. They tr Christians, they try to figure out, okay, so how do we know which books should be in there and which ones shouldn't be in there? 
And so they come up with all kinds of things and none of those satisfy me. Here's, here's my, the end of my studies on that. This is my conclusion. God saw to it which books should be in there and they are in there. That's my conclusion. That may be seem very simplistic, but it doesn't need too big of uh, explanation. Then I believe that God saw to it divinely. In the same way that he saw the books he wanted in would get in, he saw divinely that the right words he wanted in got in. So when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about every word being inspired by God. God breathed. And so I believe that he saw to that uh, as well. And so this is what I believe. The church has had available to it for all of the church age the best manuscripts available for translating the scriptures. And it wasn't man that saw to it, it was God that saw to it. That's my view. It's very simplistic, gets you out of a lot of trouble. <laughs> and so far, I haven't found what trouble it gets you into. Now, number three, I believe that a translation that is done uh, uh, as literally as possible and as readable as possible in that language is the best way to translate. Today, I think all modern translations, except this new one, maybe may be different, use what they call dynamic equivalence. So you try to take the people you're translating to, take their thoughts, and you try to convert this to their thinking. So what ends up, it's human thinking overriding uh, divine words, they, they don't have many of the divine words that they need to understand. Here's my conclusion on that. You convert the people to the Bible, not the Bible to the people. That's the way around. So anyway, as you consider new translations, that's, those are some things to consider. One positive point I see in this translation is that they have tried to stay as literal as possible. That's a switch nowadays, and so that's a plus. Let me add one more thought related to our past studies. The Jews were scattered throughout the world after the Roman uh, general Titus destroyed Jerusalem, and uh, they are called the Jews of the Diaspora. Anybody heard of the Diaspora? What is that? Okay, they are the Jews of the dispersion. They were dispersed. Uh, from from Israel. And uh, so we looked at the prophecies of the Old Testament that said that these diaspora would be regathered to Israel. And we saw that's what the Old Testament teaches. That has been happening now for over a hundred years. The other day I read an article titled, Calling All Americans. This is from Israel. Calling All Americans. It is time to make Aliyah or Aliyah. Aliyah is a call to Jews to return to Israel. And if you watch the news or you keep up with Israel, you will see from time to time a plane load of Jews going back to Israel. So it's still a time of gathering. Now, there is hardly a country in the world where Jews are welcome today. Canada, not an exception. The United States is not an exception. There's anti-Semitism in many places. So what we're seeing, we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy right in our very own day. 
So with all that, back to our subject. In the last several sessions, we looked at important prophetic events that have taken place in the closing days of the church age. And maybe it would be better to say important events to take place before the tribulation. I do not know how much we will see, how much time there will be between the rapture and the tribulation, and I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. So we saw that the spiritual climate in uh, the church would not be good, just as we see it today. We saw that the ma major political efforts would be to make peace. And is there a cry for peace today? Have you looked at Israel? Have you tried to figure out how they're going to get out of this present problem? Their problem may be compounded in the next little while. Have you looked at Ukraine and see what's going to happen there? You know what? If Putin takes over Ukraine, you know what's going to happen? More Baltic states or more of that area, is going, he's going to seek to get it. And you wonder, how, what's all supposed to happen? But you know what the good thing is? I've mentioned it several times in, in, in this, is that our story ends like this. They lived happily ever after. That's the good thing. And today we can rest content. God knows what's coming. We need to do our part to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and all of that. But God knows what's coming. But in general, right up until now, up until the day the Lord comes to take the church home, by and large, this is what I see it will be like. Just like it is today. People eating, drinking, and marrying and giving marriage. Daily life concerns take place as usual. And uh, all of a sudden, the Lord will take his people home. So people, at the end of the tribulation, where we saw, people will be calling on the rocks and hills to fall on them. They will be begging for death, and they will not find death. It will not be life as usual. Now, with regard to the nations of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, we saw that Israel has to be a nation before the tribulation begins. Well, you know what? Since 1948, that has been in place. For 2,000 years, that was a most unlikely thing to happen, but in 1948, that took place. And today, the nations that will go against Israel are aligning in the way that the Bible talks about Russia and Iran and Turkey and etc. So I, uh, one of the things I see happening, I'm convinced that right at this very moment, many young Jews are being prepared to consider Jesus Christ as a Messiah. You, you can watch the news. Watch this, this uh, Pinto man who's giving, giving news and the Israeli government and trusting news to a Christian, and he's not shy about it. And you see something happening in our time. So um, Israel um, recognizes the uh, premillennial branch of Christianity and the amillennial branch. They have recognized them for a long time. The amillennialists are not friends. The premillennialists are Israel's friends. Today, those who take the Bible literally are expecting Christ's return at any moment. They have their eyes open to the events taking place in the world, and we want to now consider the teaching we know as the rapture. 
of the church, an event we believe could happen at any moment. Now, one of the nice things for me, so for a lot of you, for some of you, this is uh, all old hat, but one of the nice things for me is to have had the time to re-go over these things, and I trust it'll be, a lot of this will be a refresher for you as well. So the rapture, what is the rapture? Let me briefly explain the word rapture before we go on. People sometimes say the word rapture is unbiblical. You cannot find the word anywhere in the Bible. It has often been said that we can also not find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, but we all believe it. It's not whether the word is there, it's the teaching uh, there. And uh, the concept of the rapture is there just as much as the concept or yeah, I think I could say that as much as the concept of the Trinity. Uh, it is a biblical concept, and we're going to see that. Now, for some of the, uh, you, these sessions are refresher, but for many, these may be entirely new things. And I hope there are those who will listen to this for whom these are new things. And I trust that for those for whom this is uh, not new, it will be a good reminder, and for those for whom it is new, they will dig into the scriptures. Now, the English word rapture comes from the Latin word rapir, meaning to be, anybody know? Caught up. caught up, to be caught up. The word rapir occurs in First Thessalonians in the Latin Bible, and in English, uh, the word which... Uh, from which it comes in the original is the word words caught up, caught up. This is a key, First uh, Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You might want to turn to that. This is a key passage on the teaching of the rapture. So if you don't believe in a rapture, you need to explain what does this all mean. So we begin in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, there's our word, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now the original a word translated caught up in verse 17 is harpazo. The online Bible dictionary gives these three meanings of the word, uh, uh, of this word, harpazo or rapture or caught up. Number one, to seize, carry off by force, to seize on, claim one for oneself eagerly, to snatch out of the way. Several meanings of this word. So the standard translation of this word in English is caught up. So what is the rapture? Well, it is the catching up of all believers or of the church to a meeting place with Christ in the air. 
Now, the Bible.org says, uh, says this, Our modern understanding of rapture appears to have little or no connection with the eschatological event, the end-time event. However, the word is properly used of that event. Rapture is a state or experience of being carried away. So some are carried away emotionally. So it's a rapture, but this is a literal carrying away. Then it says, the English word comes from a Latin word, rapio, which means to seize or snatch in relation to an ecstasy of spirit or the actual remover from, removal from one place to another. In other words, it means to be carried away in spirit or in body. The rapture of the church means the carrying away of the church from earth to heaven. Well, we see that Christ came down into the air. Now, the Greek word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, as I mentioned, is harpazo, and it means to be caught up. Or the Latin rapio or rapier, to carry off, uh, and from which we get the word rapture. So to get a feel for this word, listen to a couple scriptures. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12.2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. There's our word, rapture. Verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now listen to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So that speaks of Jesus Christ when he ascended to heaven. He was caught up. So 1 Thessalonians, speaking of the Lord's coming for the church, says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So let me say that a catching up of believers to glory is not something new uh, when we talk about the rapture. Anybody here know when the first rapture happened? Well, uh, in, in the Bible, uh, you can turn to Genesis chapter 5. Here is a rapture. That's pretty early in the book of Genesis. We're going to read uh, um, verse, verse 5. Is that Genesis 5? Genesis, I think I got the wrong. Yeah, it could be Genesis 5. Verses 21 through 24. Does it say Enoch lived? Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he, by the way, this name Methuselah, they tell me it means when he is old, it will be sent. That's when the flood came. So anyway, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. There's a rapture. We got caught up. Listen to Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before him he was, 
before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So there you have a rapture. Now turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. The idea of a catching up of believers is not something that was not heard of in the Old Testament. You will know the story of Elijah and Elisha and how God took Elijah. And in 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11, it says this, Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. So what is that? That's a, a rapture. It caught up. So, so unbelievable was this event. Do you remember the story? So unbelievable was this event that the sons of the prophets said, you know what, God's going to have dropped him somewhere up on the hill, somewhere or maybe in some valley. We better check. And they begged Elisha to send somebody in. They begged until he was ashamed to say no anymore, and so they sent. And of course, they didn't find Elijah. Now, the next rapture is that of Jesus Christ. The word to catch up is not used, but let me read for you Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Luke writes this, and he says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. That's a rapture. So in most rapture accounts, those taken up are taken up bodily. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a passage I alluded to earlier, uh, says this, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Yeah, you might want to look at that. I'm, this is a rapture, though... The person is not taken up bodily, but taken up uh, in spirit, we think. He says he didn't know, but uh, verse 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one caught up to the third heaven. That's our same word again. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul said he didn't know whether he was caught up bodily or in spirit, but he was caught up. Twice it uses the word from which we get the word rapture in this passage. Then turn to Revelation chapter 4. John has written about the seven churches of Asia and it is written that uh, it is interesting that right after writing to the last church uh, in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 he says this after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and uh, the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So the word rapture or caught up is not used here, but we see clearly that he was caught up. And from here on, the rest of what is written in the book of Revelation was given to him while he was in heaven. Now turn to chapter 11, and we're going to read a little longer section, chapter 11 of Revelation, uh, 
Let's start in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, by the way, the 42 months and the six, these uh, 1,260 days are the same length of time. Now, if you find it a little warm there, you can open that window up there. So. Now, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands before, standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their body, dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our, also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Now <laughs> You have to picture this. I believe this uh, will be a televised event, event where the whole world will see these two uh, raptured, caught up. So the idea of a catching up uh, or a rapture of believers is not new to Scripture. So to get the full impact of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, where it talks about believers being caught up, let me read verses 13 through 18 once more. You can just listen to it. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with a voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So let's consider from this passage what happens when Jesus comes for the church. The Thessalonians were concerned because they had expected the Lord to return in their time. And now some of the believers had passed away and they thought they had missed out. And uh, those who had died are spoken of here as those who had fallen asleep. 
And Paul says, I do not want you to sorrow like others who have no hope. Then in verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, those who sleep in Jesus are those who have died and their bodies have been buried, but their soul and spirit has gone on to heaven. When the Lord returns, uh, he will bring soul and spirit with him. The body will be resurrected and meet them in the air and uh, they will have their resurrected bodies. So... Uh, therefore, in verse 15, Paul says that at the rapture, those who are alive when this catching up happens will by no means leave out those who have died. As a matter of fact, those who have died will be resurrected first and will be reunited with, reunited with their soul and spirit, which Jesus has brought with him, verse 16. This will happen in a split second before those who are alive uh, are raptured and so after the dead have been raised then those who are alive and remain that is Christians will be caught up raptured together with those who have been resurrected after this the Christian will forever be with the Lord so how long will all this take how long does it take well you know today we have I'm not even sure. I don't think the Bible talks about a minute or might talk about it, but it doesn't have it. Uh, they didn't need short times like that back there. It was hard enough to keep an hour. But today we have seconds and nanoseconds and picoseconds. You have to have all of this to measure how fast electricity uh, moves and so on. And so how long will all of this take? Uh, listen to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So there's our measurement, the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So this is the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 18, we find that the teaching of the rapture is to be a comfort to believers. We will find later why the rapture is a comfort to believers. Now, for those who are using the notes I made available, I'm, I'm going to add a point here, a point 1B for those who, who have the, the notes. It will be not 1 or 2, but 1B. Um, Here's my question. I want to answer this, and I haven't done this before, I think. How far back does the teaching of the rapture go? Would you like to guess how far back does it go? Like, I've tried to find out how far back does the once saved, always saved teaching go? I can only trace it about 200 years. I've talked to all kinds of people, pastors and others. They can't give me any information how much further back this teaching goes. How far back does the rapture teaching go, do you think? Well, do you care to guess? Beginning of the church age. Beginning of the church age? Don't answer me like David Cloud says, well, duh, it's in the Bible, you know. <laughs> I'm talking about after 
the New Testament was written. So the beginning of the church age, well, uh, you are pretty well correct. So let me give you some of this. David Cloud writes an article called, When Was the Pre-Tribulational Rapture First Taught? He gave this in January of this year. And I'm going to quote from the article, and this is what he says. It has long been alleged by those who interpret prophecy allegorically, like the amillennialism, so that the pre-tribulational rapture is a new doctrine and cannot therefore be true. And some people say, well, just go back a little ways and you'll find this woman and the teaching came from over there, and so on. Then he says, for example, Gary DeMar, president of American Vision, says, a majority of prophecy writers and speakers teach that the church will be raptured before a future tribulational period. But did you know that prior to about 1830, no such doctrine existed? No one in all of church history ever taught the pre-tribulational rapture. Cloud goes back to Ephraim the Syrian, who lived 303, from 303 to 373. That's quite a few years before 1830, right? And I quote, We now go back to two centuries after the apostles. Ephraim is venerated as a saint by the Catholic and Orthodox churches, but they would not allow him to teach his doctrine of prophecy today. Ephraim is called the Syrian because he lived in that region. He was a voluminous writer. Many of his sermons and psalms are included in the 16-volume Post-Nicene Library. Uh, let me see, I'm going to leave some things out here. Some of Ephraim's sermons and hymns are used in the liturgy of Orthodox churches. In the 1990s, some of Ephraim's writings were translated into English for the first time. One of these being on the last times, the Antichrist and the end of the world. So this is way back 300 years after Christ. The translation was done by Professor Cameron Rhodes of Tyndale Theological Seminary at the bequest of Grant R. Jaffrey, a common writer on the pre-tribulational rapture. It was subsequently published in Jeffrey's 1995 book, Final Warning. It is obvious that Ephraim believed in a literal fulfillment of prophecy, including a rapture of New Testament saints prior to the tribulation. Here is what Ephraim wrote, and I continue to quote, For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Well, that's as plain as you can get it. Then he says, Observe that Ephraim taught that the saints will be taken to the Lord so they will not see the confusion, that is, to overwhelm the world, which is exactly what 1 Thessalonians 5, 3-9 says. Ephraim taught a literal antichrist who will sit in a literal rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, a literal three-and-a-half-year tribulation, a literal two witnesses or prophets who will preach in Jerusalem, a literal battle of Gog and Magog. And when, and quoting, and when the three and a half years have been completed, the time of the Antichrist through which he will have seduced the world after the resurrection of the two prophets, 
in the hour which the world does not know, and on the day which the enemy or son of perdition does not know, will come the sign of the Son of Man coming forward, the Lord shall appear with great power and much majesty, with the sign of the word of salvation going before him, and also even with all the powers of the heavens, with the whole chorus of the saints. Then Christ shall come, and the enemy shall be thrown into confusion, and the Lord shall destroy him by the spirit of his mouth, and he shall be bound, and he shall be plunged into the abyss of everlasting fire alive, and his father Satan and all people who do his wishes shall perish with him forever, but the righteous ones shall inherit everlasting life with the Lord forever and ever. So that's pretty well down the line of modern pre-tribulational rapture teaching. Then I quote again, Ephraim believed in the imminency of the return of Christ and urged Christians to live godly lives in expectation of his return, end quote. So uh, Cloud has a lot more to say, but let me give you a more modern quote. So they said this teaching had never been known before 1830. So um, let me give you a little more. Remember that DeMar said that uh, this uh, doctrine had not been known since 18, 1830. This is very common thinking by those who oppose a pre-tribulational rapture. So let me give you another man quoted by Cloud. His name is Morgan Edwards, who lived in 1722. That's still over 100 years before 1830. A good number of years uh, before DeMar said this doctrine was never known. I quote, The pre-tribulation rapture was taught by prominent Baptist leader Morgan Edwards. His two academical exercises on the subjects bearing the following titles, Millennium and Last Novelties, was published in 1744 in uh, Philadelphia. Morgan Edwards was one of the most prominent Baptist leaders of his day. He was the pastor of the Baptist Church in Philadelphia and the founder of Brown University, the first Baptist college in America. A summary of life was featured in the Baptist Encyclopedia. He was one of the first Baptist historians of repute. Um, his materials toward a history of Baptists providing a foundation for all subsequent works. And here is what Edwards taught. The distance between the first and second resurrection will be somewhat more than a thousand years. I say somewhat more because the dead saints will be raised and the living changed at Christ's appearing in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And this will, remember this is in the 1700s, and this will be about three and a half years before the millennium. As we shall see hereafter, but will he and they abide in the air all that time? No, they will ascend to paradise or to some one of those many mansions in the Father's house, John 14, 2, and disappear during the foresaid period of time. The design of this retreat and disappearing will be to judge the risen and changed saints, for now the time is come that judgment must begin and that will be at the house of God. End quote. So Cloud then goes on like this. Now, why am I giving this? Because 
people argue this teaching had never been heard of before. It's brand new. It, uh, 1830s about the first time it was ever heard of. So he writes further, we should note that Edwards believed that the tribulation would only be three and a half years, so he was not promoting a pre-wrath or mid-trib position. Edwards first wrote the previous statement in, an, uh, in a senior essay while at Bristol Baptist College in Bristol, England, before coming to America. At the beginning of the essay, in a comment addressed to his teacher, Edwards said, and is it come to my... Now, you remember, now he's a senior in Bible school. And they've asked him to write on this. And he says, and is it come to my lot to treat of the millennium or Christ's thousand-year reign on earth? Thousand pities, sir, that you had not allotted the task to one of these older and abler students but since it is your pleasure, I will do my best possible. And in the attempt will work by a rule you have often recommended. The rule is this, to take the scriptures in a literal sense. Have you heard that before? <laughs> Except when that leads to contradiction or absurdity. Well, that's exactly the same rule we promote today. Now note that Edward's teacher told him to do exactly what I have been saying we must do, and that is interpret literally as much as possible. So Cloud goes on like this. This rule of literal interpretation of prophecy, by the way, I wouldn't say that the Mennonites weren't the first to promote this. Sola Scriptura, stick with the scriptures only. And I, I can't find uh, anybody that has ever written on the influence of the Mennonites on that, but it's there. So this rule of literal interpretation of prophecy is exactly the rule from which pre-tribulationalists work today. It is the rule that I teach in my, this is cloud writing, teach in my courses on Bible interpretation. Edwards bluntly rejected the allegorical approach of the millennial uh, kingdom prophecies. He said, miserable work do these amillennarians make of these texts. And I would agree with that. Edwards was writing 175 years before the destruction of the Ottoman Empire's hold on the land of Israel. At that time, it looked like an impossibility, and he's saying they're going to be a nation again. And 200 years before the establishment of the modern state of Israel, yet he knew that these things would happen. Well, you will remember that I told you that long before Israel became a nation again, prophecy students began to say that Israel would become a nation again. By that time, Turkey had had that land in possession for well over a thousand years, and nobody believed it could be taken from them, uh, so Israel could not possibly become a nation. By the way, Turkey is much in the news today again. And I told you they said something like this, who uh, or uh, how that will happen, we do not know. What we know is the Bible says it will happen, so it will happen. And so it happened. And now we're 75 years or more past that. Cloud continues like this, consider the following fascinating prediction that he, Edwards, made based on literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. The Turkish or Ottoman Empire will be demolished. This is 175 years before. For otherwise the right owners cannot possess their inheritance. 
The 12 tribes, as observed before, will return to their ancient inheritance, else how can the 12 apostles be their judges? In this united capacity, they, they will rebuild Jerusalem in its place and the temple in its place on Mount Zion, for in this temple will Antichrist sit as God. See how long ago this is, and it's just coming to pass. And be uh, the abomination mentioned by Daniel and referred to uh, by Christ. From the case of Morgan Edwards, it is obvious that there were Baptists in the 18th century in England and America who held the literal principle of Bible interpretation of uh, Bible prophecy as we promote here today. Well, I could give you a lot more quotes, but that's, that's enough to, to show that before 1830, this was a teaching that had been taught. So let me ask another question now. If the rapture happens before the tribulation and Jesus comes down to earth at the end of the tribulation, are the rapture and the second coming the same event or are there two second comings or is there a second and a third coming? Well, how would you answer that? Are there two comings yet? Uh, is there a second and a third coming? Well, premillennialists often distinguish between the rapture and what they call the second coming of Christ. The Bible never uses the phrase second coming. You won't find it in the Bible. It talks about him coming again. However, the question may be raised, does Christ come again once or twice? The usual answer given by those who hold to a pre-tribulational or mid-tribulational view is that he comes once in two phases. He comes first into the air to take his people home, and then he comes at the second coming at the end of the tribulation. So at the rapture, he does not come down to earth. He comes into the air. The believers are caught up to him and he returns to heaven with them. However, at the second coming, he comes all the way down to earth and he will be on earth for a thousand years and rule here for a thousand years. Now, I think there's good evidence for the view that he comes for the church and later he comes and set up his kingdom. As a matter of fact, I don't know how else you can stick with literal interpretation through scriptures and hold them consistently. I don't think it's possible. So why so? I think it not possible to harmonize the scriptures that speak of his coming again and fit them all into one coming. Um, so I want to give some of the differences between two phases of Christ's return. And I will distinguish between them by calling them the rapture and the second coming. What I will give you now, I have added as notes to the previous message in uh, PDF form on sermon audio, so you can download this if you want to study it. Uh, there's going to be too much to remember and too much. If you question this, you can download this and study the scriptures and see if you can put all the references that talk about him coming again, put them all into one coming. See, does that work? Uh, I have called this uh, document that you can download, The Rapture versus the Second Coming. 
So here is how I give it. I'm not going to give the scripper references. Whoever wants that can download this. It would be too time consuming for me here. At the rapture, Christ's coming is unexpected. It is life as usual. At the second coming, life is anything but life as usual. At the rapture, number two, the Lord comes into the clouds and air. At the second coming, he comes all the way down to earth. At the rapture, the righteous are taken up to heaven. At the second coming, the righteous inherit the millennial kingdom on earth. That's a huge difference. At the rapture, only the saved are gathered to the Lord. At the second coming, the righteous and the wicked are gathered before the Lord. At the rapture, there is no judgment before the righteous reach the, their destination. At the second coming, the righteous are first judged. At the rapture, the righteous remain on earth and go into the tribulation. The unrighteous remain on earth and go into the tribulation. At the second coming, the unrighteous are removed from the earth and cast into hell. So how can you fit these into one? At the rapture, the righteous are removed from the earth uh, while the unrighteous are left on it. At the second coming, the righteous remain on the earth while the unrighteous are removed from it and cast into hell. At the rapture, the bodies of the righteous are changed. At the second coming, the bodies of the righteous are not changed because they repopulate the earth. At the rapture, the righteous do not reproduce anymore. After the second coming, those who are alive repopulate the earth. At the rapture, Christ comes for the church. At the second coming, he comes from heaven with the church. At the rapture, only the righteous are judged. At the second coming, the righteous and unrighteous are judged. And number 12, at the rapture, the righteous are taken to heaven and then judged. At the second coming, the righteous are judged and then told to come and inherit the kingdom on earth. Now, from these cases, it seems to me it is hard to argue that all the references of Christ's return refer to the same event. In one scene, it is life as usual. In the other, they are begging for the rocks and hills to fall on them and kill them. So when Christ comes to earth through the uh, conception and birth of the Virgin Mary, the Jews understood from prophecy that he was coming once, and that was to set up his kingdom. You know what error they made? The error they made was that they did not see that he would come once to suffer and die and then once come as a king. May it be that we make the same error today in thinking he is coming once, when in actual fact he will come for his own first and then come again as king. So in our next uh, session, we'll deal with this a little more, but I'll just get into it a little bit here, I think. Oh, maybe I won't. Is our time early? We're a little early. We'll stop a little early today. So let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, how we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, you might use these words in some way to encourage someone and to help someone on in a life that is filled with trials and, and troubles and difficulties and, 
and may there be encouragement and a looking up and an expectancy of the Lord Jesus at any time. Bless us, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.